We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking down the early free agency moves, and there is a ton. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. I think I'm going to remove the Twitter from the intro, Sean, because you don't even have a Twitter, and I don't really care about Twitter. I've, I've been copying you. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his work at Rotoviz. I know he's doing a ton behind the scenes, helping um, some of the writers as you guys are reacting to everything over there. Which is great because you, I don't think, I think you just said to me before the show, you don't, you haven't read any of your own stuff, but people should definitely go check all those pieces out. They're Sean Siegel approved if, if, if you need that. Sean, how are you doing? Good, good. Uh, Michael Hitchcock's been doing a fantastic job on our free agent reactions. Blair, obviously, always in there. As you mentioned, I'm working behind the scenes. We are drawing the line at a few things. You know, it always depends on kind of where you want to go, but you know, people are not going to, Subscribe to Rotoviz because of the Zay Jones signs a ludicrous contract article. We'll talk about that on shows. If but we it was so funny. Decide. It was always funny. Well, you know, Derek Carr gets all this criticism, but if you want to go rehab your career and then sign a ludicrous, ludicrous contract somewhere else, go play for the, the Raiders for a year and then some other team will give you $20 million. This is the point uh, where Rotoviz needs. The comedy writer. I know, you know, our buddy Pete Overzet, who's maybe a little too serious these days to do it, could have wrote a really good Rotoviz write up on the Zay Jones signing. Or even I remember uh, Josh Klein years ago, who's now a uh, a beat reporter, I think for for Carolina, but he used to write some really funny stuff for Rotoviz back in the day. We, you guys, need, you need a comedy writer for that one. We need to get Solis out there writing. The, yes, the there you go. Report. Where is he at? Though. Where is he at? We'll uh, we'll contact John. Get him on some of those moves but then yeah it's been a fun day as always here with the first wave of free agent signings i like to mention that it looks like the chiefs are in on all of the slowest most broken down wide receivers in the nfl so if there's someone else you can add to the Allen robinson jarvis landry juju smith schuster discussion i'm sure the chiefs are in on that player as well but uh, what's standing out to you in this first wave? I know that today we had J.D. McKissick, who has been, I don't want to say a little bit of a thorn in your side, but McKissick, Antonio Gibson, some of those conversations we've discussed before. 
And then just when Devin Singletary looks like he might have a pretty big role, the Bills make this somewhat strange decision to sign McKissick. I've got some thoughts on this, Ben, but I, I do want to throw it over to you and see what your initial reaction was on hearing this news. This is a little bit more of a a low impact signing, I think, for the player involved, but the repercussions for other much more important players could be significant. Yeah. Um, first, I'll say that if anyone hasn't had the chance yet to listen to Rotoviz Overtime this week, I know you guys already had a discussion about some of the initial wave of players. Definitely go check in there if we don't touch on anybody that you're looking for our reactions on. I know Sean, you and Calm had a great discussion about that already. So we're going to hit on, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. We're going to hit on various things, but I'm going to kind of let you steer the ship in terms of trying to hit on some stuff that maybe you guys didn't hit on as much over there. Um, and the McKissick note is a really interesting one. I mean, I, yeah, the thorn in the side thing, obviously the, the routes and, and Antonio Gibson and the way I'm looking at high value touches and all of these things has been a big talking point in stealing signals over the last couple of years. My read initially in terms of the, the impact on Gibson was that I'm probably not going to want to draft him actually because he's been good. And I think the ceiling is still incredibly high, but I immediately saw a lot of optimism that he's going to have like a top five season. And so we'll see where he settles in. But based on what he's done over these first couple of years, I have a hard time with him as like a first round running back and especially with a guy like Jarrett Patterson behind him and the potential that they go and draft someone else to take on some of that JD McKissick role. We don't know for sure right now that Antonio Gibson, but I mean, obviously by the heavy drafting season, we'll have that information. I think he can handle the three down workload, but he has had some bumps and bruises and he wasn't a workhorse in college. And that's something that we definitely look at in value is that guys that are able to handle massive workloads in college tend to actually be able to handle them at the pro level, it's not like a, a bad thing that they had so many touches in college. It's actually a, a skill that they've displayed. Gibson has not really necessarily displayed that skill, that ability to stay healthy and highly efficient over the course of a season. He's been really good the last two years. I do like him a lot, but I'm concerned that the market's going to get higher than where I'm going to want to go on him. And then on the Bills side, I, I mean, I think you put it well. I, I've been interested that so I feel like the only thing I've heard is that it was a great signing for the Bills. And I think a lot of people are saying that from the real world perspective, that the Bills are, you know, this team that might be the next great AFC team. They obviously fell short a little bit in that really amazing playoff game against the Chiefs this past year. What is what does McKissick add to their offense? He's a great pass blocker. He's, you know, uh, a good in the in the passing game. The way that they want to run their offense where Josh Allen is a big part of their rushing attack. They're so pass heavy. And then him, you know, extending plays and potentially scrambling is a lot of what they do in terms of rushing yardage uh, to have a back like McKissick there. It makes sense. Right. I mean, from a, and so I think that's where a lot of those discussions are coming from, but I'm sort of with you in terms of the fantasy thing where it's, it's, it's somewhat interesting. I'm not, I don't think I'll be heavy on McKissick. Uh, he's obviously drawn a ton of his value over the last few years on receptions. And what we know about the bills is that they haven't had a ton of running back receptions over the last couple of years, because as I always talk about, a lot of that is dependent on the offense and the quarterback specifically. And Allen is not a quarterback that is spending a lot of time checking down. He's capable of that. If that's the way you want to put it, 
certainly McKissick can have solid reception numbers, but because he's not going to add a lot of additional value, because Allen's still going to be a presence in the rushing touchdown equation, and because Singletary and these guys are there as well to probably be the next presence in the rushing touchdown equation, and McKissick's probably a little bit further down, he's not going to probably be a high touchdown guy. It is the receptions for McKissick to have value in PPR leagues, and you know he's not going to be a 60-catch guy. I, you know Maybe he's vaguely interesting at, at 35 catches or 40 catches, but like, I don't want a, a pass catching back that doesn't, in my mind, have 60 catch upside. And, and he probably, in addition, won't because Singletary is a, is a reasonable enough receiver. I mean, he hasn't been great necessarily these last few years as a receiver, but it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting fit. I agree with you in terms of what that means for Singletary. That's the player I think you're alluding to when you're saying that the ramifications it has on other guys, because now the fact that Singletary could potentially get his own receptions into this like 35, 40 catch range, which would be positive for him with his, you know, ability to be somewhat explosive as a runner, which you've been very high on. That's, that's lower now. He's probably not going to be a 35 or 40 catch back. And and then it goes back to, well, how many carries is he going to get? Are they going to, you know, they're, they're not a run first offense by any means is, you know, they committed to him down the stretch. You've talked a lot about this over the last few months. It's going to be hard to imagine that they're committing to him at to that degree throughout the 2022 season. I'm going to build on those notes a little bit because those are perfect and try and make the sort of contrarian argument that this signing is actually good news for Singletary and mildly bad news for Antonio Gibson within the context of kind of what we have heard or been scared about for these backs in terms of what the teams would do this offseason. Right. So you mentioned the way these different teams have used their passing offenses. And I was digging into the road of his screener a little bit right before the show to get a little bit of a feel for what that meant on third down. Because we know that McKissick, that's probably where he is the big weapon. 16 of the 19 third down targets, two running backs for Washington last year went to McKissick. You look Gibson, only three of his 49 targets come on third down so yeah there's a potential to add that but that's probably not going to be his role anyway and someone like Jared Patterson could come in and take a little bit of that work and the really scary thing that we've heard and I still you know would have some skepticism about their ability to do this but we've heard that Washington actually wants to add a second sort of elite back to pair with Gibson and once you lose McKissick then it actually opens that up a little bit whereas I think that before this move fantasy participants were perhaps scared that Singletary was going to have another starting level back drop down on him in which case you know then his value goes back to almost zero you're back into that situation where the bills aren't going to generate enough total value to the running backs for it to be split like it was you know last year between Singletary and Moss for a big chunk of the season McKissick I think actually opens that up a little bit releases a little bit of that pressure that maybe the Bills would do that you look at Singletary again only seven of his 51 targets come on third down losing some third down targets to McKissick is not going to change his profile a ton now it does cap it now you go in and you look at the game splits app and you see that okay when McKissick was out, then Gibson's 17-game split for targets goes up to 78, right? So you do have this element that there is potential upside. And it's not that McKissick doesn't either help or hurt in terms of 
the potential receiving workload. But I think that if we look at what the nightmare scenarios were for both backs in terms of both free agency and the draft, and then sort of positive scenarios, this almost actually works a little bit in Singletary's favor. He looks like he's still going to be the starter unless the Bills do put even more resources into it and add somebody else. I mean, for a while, it looked like there was a real possibility that someone like a Kenneth Walker or Isaiah Spiller would be dropped in there. I think that's a little bit less likely at this point, or quite a bit less likely. Still possible, but less likely. The other thing that's just interesting there in terms of McKissick is that you mentioned Buffalo. They don't pass to the running backs, but they pass to the running backs even less on third down. They ranked 29th last year in terms of running back targets on third down. Part of that, again, because Josh Allen's looking down the field or he's scrambling just to get the first down himself in those situations. Also, the situation, I think, with Washington, they weren't particularly aggressive to the backs on third down last year. But my real concern would be that Carson Wentz was not aggressive to the backs in Indianapolis. And you know, you and I had these long kind of fun discussions about the game being on the line, Jonathan Taylor being wide open with you know room to run 50 yards, and Wentz forcing the ball 50 down 50 yards downfield to a covered wide receiver. Triple covered. Right, right. So, <laughs> Triple covered. And that's why the Colts got rid of him, right? That kind of thing. I mean, all of that plays into the collapse down the stretch that made them not want him back. And so when I mean, you look at Jonathan Taylor, you look at Hines, they've got two of the better receiving backs. And especially with Hines, I mean, his numbers, again, just not utilized on third down last season, the way you would expect a back of his strengths to be. I would be worried that Washington is not going to have this big third down dump off to the running back profile. Now, we know that sometimes when you get deep into the splits, you can become overconfident in how teams are going to play how these things actually transpire in the following season can be different. But I think it is interesting to sort of look at these teams, plot out how we think that they're going to use their players next season. And I guess now I would be worried that Washington actually might make some type of significant commitment. The other thing is just, I, I do like this for Jarrett Patterson. He and, you know, Benjamin are two of the sleeper backs that Blair and I were drafting in the very final rounds early on. At some point, they're probably going to be hit with moves that take them out of the equation. But early free agency has been good for both of them. Yeah, both of them look great. In, my thought on Eno, um, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, the, the Wentz thing, when you layer that in, is just another reason to be a little bit concerned of Gibson for sure. Because I completely agree with that. I think that carries water. You're not going to find us very frequently talking about throwing to running backs over trying to get the ball vertical. And yet we did spend a ton of time on that with Carson once because he's like, was so glued and, and, you know, players can evolve and things like that. But I did not think that once signing was going to be great for Washington's backs for all the reasons you said the Eno thing is really interesting because we, I mean, we talked about it on the show. I want to toot our horn a little bit. We talked about how both Connor and Edmonds are going to rise probably, but specifically that Connor looked like he should be like a fourth round pick. And he's been going in these early drafts in the 10th round. Not that we would be targeting him there, but there's no, no reason he shouldn't be relative to the backs that were in that range. And we specifically talked about this idea that Edmonds, having coming off a year where he got banged up and is a little bit smaller, was more likely probably to be the one that goes. And Connor's the one they're more likely to prioritize retaining because he stayed healthy. And when he had to take on the receiving stuff, he did that well too. And teams, that matters to teams. And so that's the decision they made. 
Uh, and we'll see Connor rise. And we'll probably also see Edmonds rise as he gets a really nice landing spot in Miami. I still think they're going to pair him with somebody, one of these rookies potentially, like you were just talking about. And if not, that maybe even that means Miles Gaskin has a little bit of life, which probably he shouldn't necessarily. He was not very good last year, but I don't think we're going to see workhorse Chase Edmonds personally based on that contract. It's a decent free agent contract, but nothing you know out of this world. The the question for Eno, as, as far as I'm concerned, is yes, now he's in this number two job and he's backing up Connor, who not necessarily the picture of health could get banged up himself. And Eno, we know to be somebody that we would just love to see in a larger role. But do you have concerns about the fact that until Jonathan Ward got hurt, Eno Benjamin was like the fourth running back last year. Some I've seen some people that are closer to the team reference that maybe Ward will be their backup now. I'm I'm a and then as you alluded to the the possibility that they draft a, a fourth round running back. I mean I'm not sure that they are anywhere near where we are in the fantasy community. And there's a lot of people ha, that have bought into this Eno love over the last couple of years that you have been and Blair certainly with his work on on running backs and, and you can get all of Blair's additional work on running backs in the rookie guide. But uh, you guys have been championing for years now since he came up. And he was good when he played last year. I think he deserves this opportunity. But my concern is that the fantasy community thinks it's more likely he's their handcuff than he actually is their handcuff. And that that might carry into August. And then we find out in season, even when, if or when Connor goes down, we might still be thinking it's Eno. And this might be one of those situations where it's like, oh, great. Eno's not the one that's getting the opportunity. Yeah, that's always a risk. I guess I'm excited because you go in and look, and I don't think there's actually anything to this, but if you pull up the Advanced Stat Explorer and you find out that in the very limited workload, he did actually lead the team in yards after contact, which a lot of people place a lot of emphasis on that stat. I think that he's a good player. We talk all the time about how his resume and Clyde Edwards-Alaris resume were exactly the same. And if anything, the fact that Benjamin was a factor earlier in college was a point in his favor obviously they get drafted into wildly different situations and at wildly different draft prices which then prejudices everything that happens because we know the opportunity that ceh has been given and will likely still be given easily trumps anything that benjamin is going to do in terms of trying to win that job for himself but i do like him we saw him get to the second level i think that you know what you have to dream on is that the cardinals are going to understand they can't make Connor a 20 expected points per game back he has to be in that sort of 15 range and even 15 would be very exciting for him from a fantasy perspective especially if they continue to be an explosive offense because you can outperform that by a couple points and then you're in that 17 to 18 point per game range I mean that's a big score for a runner but we know what they did last year especially at the beginning when they had Chase Edmonds as the starter that Edmonds was the early down explosive back. He was the third down back. James Conner was the goal line back, right? He's going to be more than that now with this new contract. We know that he's going to be at the receiver, but there are going to be touches, these low value touches that another back is going to get. And those low value touches are not going to win from a fantasy perspective right away. But if the back plays well enough and then Connor gets hurt, and Connor has been very good, but just like so many backs who are asked to do these things that get you hurt if you're running back at the NFL level, he struggled to stay healthy. And so if Benjamin can flash in that role, I think he can emerge to be 
a really a big impact player. You mentioned a rookie. I think that they'll have that. The rookie might eventually beat him out. But we do see that with these day three backs, even when they're good, that can take some time. I mean, Benjamin would potentially have the opportunity to win a real role before the rookie is ready. So, we're, yeah, we're talking about an, sort of an open competition for the number two role, potentially. And if it is that, that we like the talent in, you know, Benjamin, which a lot of people don't want to factor in talent when it comes to running backs. This is one of the, the ways that in my time playing fancy with you that you have, and, and I've always found it to be very, very successful that you're very good at this. And so I think that's great. I think that's a great way of framing all of that. And particularly the, the other side of it is that when you're thinking about this talent element, which back of the group, not only necessarily is most likely to win out that, that role, that number two role, because they're better in those limited opportunities. Like you talked about, you're, you're talking about this sort of standalone value for a second back that could be there. It's interesting to see if that'll happen because they did use Connor very heavily when Edmonds went down last year. So I'm not even necessarily on the fully on the same page with you on that, but if that were to happen, I, I think I'm with you that those, those opportunities are the ones where that number two competition would be won. And, and, presumably Eno is the, the front runner and also the secondary part of it with him being good is he's the one that we would want to win it because he's the one that would presumably have the most upside as well, based on his, his background and his profile and the things that we believe about him as a talent. So, yeah, no, I think that's a really optimistic thing. The way I've been thinking about it is if he, I like him still in the late rounds where everything's flat. If he starts to rise into this like prime zero RB range or like the 12th round, if he gets like to be like a trendy 11th, 12th round pick, I don't know that I'm chasing him there. Exactly. And I think that when you're talking about 10, 11, 12th round picks, you have to be very confident that those guys are the clear backup or they have a clear pass catching role because you're going to get some more options late among players who really are in a fight for the two, three, four roles on their team. They need to be the picks in the last couple of rounds as opposed to getting so caught up in one player that that player rises up into a range where you know the odds just aren't in your favor at that point. Then we'll go to the break here, but after we hear from our sponsors, I do want to ask you about some of these wide receivers who have gotten interesting deals and perhaps the fantasy community has been skeptical, and yet maybe there are some silver linings, and by silver linings, I just mean maybe a couple of these guys are a little bit better than we think. Hey, Rotoviz fans, this is Dave Cabin from the Rotoviz Fantasy Football Podcast, taking a minute to let you know that as a loyal Rotoviz listener, you can get 10% off a one year subscription when you use the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. It gives you full access to all of our content and tools. And again, that's RVRADIO2022 at checkout for 10% off a one year Rotoviz subscription. Enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So then one of the names that signed today is your favorite player in Russell Gage, who you are on record as saying is just a guy. He's now going to be there in Tampa Bay and perhaps have an opportunity before Chris Godwin gets back. Maybe the two exciting players who have signed and they've signed for radically different contracts because one, you know, maybe DJ Chark, despite not having nearly as big of a bank account as Christian Kirk is the winner because he's leaving Jacksonville and Kirk is heading there. But both of those guys signed to meaningful deals, both players that the fantasy community has loved at times. One of the things that I thought was interesting in going back and looking at these two players is just how terrible the quarterback play has been for them at some key moments, right? Christian Kirk plays with Josh Rosen as a rookie in his second year where he actually was better than people realized, but missed some games. And so doesn't have the total 16 game season that would have perhaps made people think about him a little bit differently. That season was with Kyler Murray, who did not play well as a passer, as a rookie, DJ Chark, I mean, his big breakout season in 2019 actually comes with Gardner Minshew, right? And so we know who he's played with. It has not been starting caliber NFL quarterbacks. Between Chark, Kirk, Russell Gage, where are you going here in terms of thinking about these guys? What What's the most relevant and interesting? Yeah, it's a super fun kind of discussion because, it, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of is, you know, these guys aren't going to do anything because free agent wide receivers don't. One of the things we're always going to talk about on this show is that, you know, there's always new trends and everything's relative to um, relative to price. I think the market is very caught up on this idea that free agent receivers are not going to necessarily make a huge impact. And I don't expect any of these guys, especially with the teams that they landed on in Gage's case, because there's a lot of competition in the other cases, because the quarterback play or the offense or whatever, I don't expect people are going to like go crazy for for these guys in drafts and so yeah we know that the long-term trends are typically that free agent receivers don't just smash right away but at what point do you take the risk based on and so like we can have that discussion and we're willing to have that discussion i'm i'm certainly willing to think through it that way um sort of counter to what i would say i've seen a lot on, on twitter and stuff where it's just like oh yeah these guys are are dust because they're going to horrible and it's like everyone's saying that that's what the market's going to do that's what the AD, you know that's what adp is going to reflect Chark, I'm not excited about the landing spot, though. Like that's like from an analyst hat on. Jared Goff is not a good downfield passer. <laughs> that's not what I want DJ Chark to be doing, uh, catching deep passes from Jared Goff, or at least you know, as you talked about when we talked about the running backs in the first half of the show. Sort of relative to alternatives, there's a lot of places that I would have preferred to running deep routes for Jared Goff. However, a couple of the downfield options for the Lions last year weren't terrible. I mean, Josh Reynolds had his spurts. They they have available targets. And Chark can catch some passes in the shallower range. I mean, there's certainly this potential for him to start earning more targets in the shallower range now that he's on a, you know, on a new deal, on a new team. It wasn't a great deal either. You know, it was like 
comparable to maybe Will Fuller's deal that he took with Miami, where it's this one year, $10 million deal trying to recoup value. Uh, and so that it's not like it was a huge commitment to make me optimistic about the fact that they're going to use him at all depths and treat him like a, you know, a number one. I mean, obviously they do have Amon Ross St. Brown, they have TJ Hawkinson, they have DeAndre Swift. Amon Ra is going to be a guy, it seems, that's going to earn a lot of targets. He did really well in targets per run last year. But complementary, certainly, to, to DJ Chark, as he's going to be more underneath and Chark's going to be more vertical. But that also makes it more challenging, I think, for Chark to see a lot of targets inside the you know, zero to 10 yard range. I mean, I'm a little concerned he's going to be sort of a wind sprinter that doesn't see a strong target share. He's good, though. He can earn those. But then it's a question of efficiency as well. And then can Jared Goff get him the football when he does earn those and when he wins those downfield routes? Is Jared Goff even going to pull that trigger or is he just going to check down? So not really optimistic about Shark because my answer to a lot of those things is not as often as we would like for, for Shark to be good. The Kirk one is interesting because I think he's a good fit for what Lawrence did well last year out of the slot. And he obviously as a slot receiver, I mean, this has been discussed a lot, I should say, but was playing outside a lot in his first couple of years, moved to the slot last year with Fitzgerald retiring, did a lot better. But he's also, as a slot receiver, he's a guy who's able to get vertical a little bit too. Like he's showed that when he's played on the outside as well. Lawrence really liked his slot guys last year. Like we saw Jamal Agnew have stretches and Dan Arnold was playing as a stand-up slot tight end a lot and getting solid target share. Uh, so if Kirk is in that slot role, which they're now talking about, potentially trading Visca. I mean, I, I think that's sort of where we're headed is that Kirk is going to be sort of their slot plus that can get downfield a little bit. If Lawrence develops at all, I mean, I think that's a good fit. Like I think he can have a pretty solid stretch there. I just, I don't think he's amazing or anything, but I also don't think the market's going to think he's amazing. So I'm, I'm open to, to drafting him. Gage is an interesting one because I actually wrote in my targets per outrun breakdown this year, exactly what you said, but then said, this is what I'm willing to potentially admit that I'm wrong on because he had a really good year last year in terms of targets per out run. And now he's actually cheaper than he was last year. Last year, he was going in the ninth round and 10th round of drafts. And I'm going, there's still good receivers there. This is like a round after Debo Samuel. He's just a guy at that price. Now he's going later because he got hurt last year. You just talked about this with Kirk. I mean, people miss stuff, but he actually had improvements last year as a target earner. He jumped all the way up into the mid twenties in terms of targets per out run hadn't, I think, been over 20 in any season yet. So it was a pretty substantial jump for him. Part of what I talked about in the Targets Per Run article when we were looking at Gage is that he didn't have much competition. Obviously, Ridley wasn't there. Pitts is a rookie, played as well as we would hope for a 20, turning 21-year-old rookie, but not somebody that was going to command massive target share and that basically had no one else. I mean, the worst receiving core in the league probably outside of that. And so Gage became sort of Matt Ryan's go-to guy. So now I do have concerns again because he goes to a spot that's crowded and has a lot of targets. We know Brady can elevate him, but once Godwin's healthy, especially, maybe he won't be right away, but once Godwin's healthy, you have Mike Evans, probably Gronk's back. I mean, we don't know that for sure. Gage is going to be on the field, but I don't think he's going to earn a lot of targets around that type of talent. And so I'm more concerned about what we saw in his target sprout run profile prior to last year. Because he goes from almost no competition to the other four guys in the route are all really good now. And one of the points that, that you've made very well is that we can get too caught up in things like available targets or available air yards that a receiver's profile and how they demand targets 
when they're out there in the routes is something that we should look at as a receiver skill and very important to what's going to happen in the future. But kind of at the extremes, it's certainly going to matter. And last year, you were at extreme with the Falcons, where there's just no target competition. As you mentioned, with the Bucks, you could be almost at that other extreme where the target competition is absolutely fierce. I'm gathering from what you're saying that you're not against picking him again at a certain price. But, I mean, especially with Godwin's health a question mark, I could see Gage not rising to the point that Antonio Brown rose to when he was generating these amazing practice reports because Antonio Brown, I mean, we know that when, when he's right, that he's a superstar and Gage is never going to be that, but there was belief in three receivers in a Tom Brady offense last year that that didn't, or doesn't make sense applied in any way, shape or form to Russell Gage. Yeah. I don't think it should. Yeah. When you look at the other players, like I think DJ Chark was a good play, a, a good signing for Amon Ross St. Brown's value. And I think because of the way they sort of complement each other. And I think Russell Gage was a good signing for Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, who did have this issue where when Antonio Brown was in in on routes, which wasn't every play, his route share as a percentage of dropbacks was not high, but, or not, not full time, at least, you know, it was in the 60% range usually. But when he was in routes, he actually had the highest targets per out run of any of them for the last couple of years. When he was actually playing with the Bucks, this guy was earning targets per route at a greater rate than Evans or Godwin or Gronk. So adding Gage to potentially be that new player, in my mind, is just clearly good for good for Godwin and Evans, um, especially now. Obviously, Brady's back. Like those guys will have more room now to actually be what they were with Jameis and stuff before Brady ever came along. And things got even more crowded and they added Gronk and all of these things. Gage, like you said, I, I he's in a great offense and there's going to be some residual effects from the fact that they're going to pass more. They're going to pass efficiency and all of those things uh, pa- pass efficiently. But it's funny because, like I said, I, I kind of flipped and said, I'm willing to be wrong on Russell Gage. But now I'm, I'm creeping back into my mind that I am concerned that he is just a guy. And last year was a season where he was just getting all these targets. I don't mind just a guy that has shown some target earning flashes in a crowded offense because injuries could create opportunity for him and all sorts of things like that at a certain price, like you said. But I, I'm hopeful, I guess, if I wanted to draft Gage, that he's sitting in the 15th round and, you know, at least 13th round or something and not re- rising into this like 9-10 range where he was a couple seasons ago. It's interesting for me on Chark, and I want to run one possibility by you here. Last year, we were a little bit surprised that Juju and Will Fuller were not able to get better contracts, and then they both got hurt and essentially did nothing. So at least from that perspective, the market seemed to be right on them. I'm a little bit surprised within the context of some of these other deals that Chark wasn't able to do a little bit better if in fact he wanted to do better and you know you have this prove it deal but as you mentioned a prove it deal with jerry goff as your qb is maybe the opposite of what you're really looking for there potentially be harder you had mentioned obviously he's a vertical receiver i i come in to all of this biased because i still have a lot of chark in dynasty love what he did in 2019 love his athleticism in the article we put together today i posted info from 
our workout explorer kind of showing just how athletic he is over the last three years obviously he's missed some time but on a per game basis he's ninth in terms of air yards right so his air yard average very high it's only the real vertical and you know superstar types of players who are above him in that but sometimes that can be a little bit of a bad thing he basically didn't catch any of his passes last year because they were so far down the field and the quarterback wasn't particularly good looking at his 2019 profile it was much more in that stefan diggs-ish kind of element of once he moved to the bills where you're getting used more all over the field and one of the things we talked about a lot with his emergence through free agency and one of the things we were looking for for some of our breakout guys last year was this idea of players who might actually be used in a more well-rounded way by their teams in a subsequent season that maybe for whatever reason a play caller or a team pigeonhole the guy a little bit too much even if they do something really well that you don't want them to only do that both for overall volume perspective and just you know to make sure that their team has to defend them in more than just one way any possibility especially like you mentioned with jerry goff probably not be the greatest deep passer that with this contract you know with one year they want to make this jump they don't have a lot of other options. Now, I would think that for both St. Brown and for Chark, your concern is they're probably going to still try and add one more player. They're going to try to build this out and then at some point bring in the next young QB, have a good situation in place, and then the Lions can be very dynamic. If they had some plan in place to add another receiver to this team, I mean, you mentioned the guys they already have, Hawkinson, Swift, St. Brown, Chark, if he's healthy. I mean, this could be a dynamic offense if they got some quarterback play. Yeah. And the quarterback play is a big part of it. I mean, I think you said, you said that incredibly well, I was kind of alluding to that a little bit earlier, but you, you just said it exactly the way that I would think about it, that there's certainly some optimism for shark that he could get that usage. But I, as I sort of alluded to next with the contract, I mean, one of the big reasons I was so optimistic about Diggs was that the bills, number one, not even before trading for him, were trying to trade for Antonio Brown. Everyone remembers that. And they had the like, several hour period where Antonio Brown was going to be a bill. It had been announced. And then he basically was like, I'm going to retire. <laughs> and the deal, you know, the deal kind of fell through where the agreement was in place or whatever. And it fell through because he was not going to be willing to play for the bills. The next off season, then they go out, they get digs and they trade a first and a third and a fifth, I think, or, a, you know, there was a pick swap in there as well, but they went out and they paid to get Stefan Diggs. And so in my mind, it was very clear. They wanted that alpha receiver. They were trying to get it with, with Antonio Brown, and they went and got it with Diggs. DJ Chark's a one-year $10 million flyer that they took in free agency. I mean, I think that's a massive difference in terms of how the, how we can be optimistic about how the player or the team views the player. And to your point, this is now a prove-it deal, and I think it's insane that DJ Chark or his agents or whoever allowed that this to happen with the Lions. I mean, I'm sure he could have got one-year $8 million somewhere else. I mean, what was that? Like that almost to me reflects that they must have not had much of a market because he needs to recoup his value. And no, they're not idiots. They know that going and playing with Jared Goff and playing with the Lions is probably not the best place. I mean, maybe they think that there's vacated targets and they're thinking in those kinds of terms, but it's probably not the best place for him to have a really highly efficient, great season. You probably want to be attached to a better quarterback. So that almost speaks poorly of like what was available to him and, 
Yeah, I the way that I would put it is I think he would need to add quite a bit of intermediate and shorter range volume because I don't expect him to be very efficient on the downfield stuff or even get a lot of targets downfield because Goff doesn't do that enough. And it's hard to, for me to see him add a lot of that on this roster when you have Haman Ross St. Brown and you have Hawkinson and Swift. I mean, those are guys that Goff played with last year as well. We still have the element where like he hasn't played with Chark yet. Whatever the reason for, for receivers changing teams, not necessarily doing well. Certainly part of it's probably quarterback familiarity. Goff's coming back next year with guys that he played well with last year and hit Amon Ross St. Brown a lot and hit and has, has hit Hawkinson some. We would have liked to see a little bit more of and has, has checked down to Swift and understands where he's going to be at the field and what his skill set is. I just I don't see a scenario where DJ Chark comes in and suddenly has a really solid short to intermediate range for a deep threat, obviously. I mean, but you, you need to be able to add that. And I don't see that for him. And so then it's a question of can the deep stuff be maybe more, in my mind, can it be maybe more efficient than I'm giving credit for? That's possible. I mean, maybe, but we do have sort of a long history with golf of that not necessarily being great. I mean, even dating back to LA. So yeah, I just, I, I'm with you that that is the, the upside scenario for Chark. It'll be interesting to see where his price lands. It might be worth taking some shots at. And I also am completely with you on what you said about his past history. He's shown an ability to do that stuff. But based on the contract and based on the way he's sort of viewed now and has been over the last couple of years, I just don't think that's what we're going to get. We'll see if he gets there and Dan Campbell tells him that he needs to add another 20 or 30 pounds. And right. That's Start buying some kneecaps. This isn't really fair. There's no real answer to this question. But I did want to throw out to you, if the Lions use that pick they acquired from the Rams – to take someone like a Howell or a Ritter, or if Corral were to really fall and be there for them, does it make you more or less excited if they have a, Q, a rookie QB who's in the mix for the second half of the season? Yeah, more immediately. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally see your point there. If they're able to add somebody that, that we have the potential of getting six or eight games, I'm just buying into the uncertainty at that point. Goff is, is a negative, is a below average quarterback for what we want from Chark. And so... Even if it's a rookie, there's certainly some possibility that it's closer to average or above average. I mean, Goff, I would say, is not just below average for Chark's specific profile. He's one of the worst possible quarterbacks you could have in the league, in my mind. And so I would buy into the uncertainty uh, a little bit more, certainly, the possibility of a rookie quarterback being a better fit. Well, let's leave the listeners, because I know they're as invested as in the Kansas City Chiefs as I am. Probably by the time that we release this, the Chiefs will have signed someone. But we get a chance to look like an Oracle. Who? Who? But that's not really even the question. Who would you like to see in Kansas City as they're obviously thinking along the same lines that I am, and I think a lot of other people, that the second half of that AFC Championship game, the lack of a third piece behind Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey doomed their offense, kept them from being Super Bowl champions, they're looking at Jarvis Landry, Allen Robinson, Juju Smith-Schuster. Um, any chance that like Will Fuller will get in the mix there? What would you like to see them do? Fuller would be sweet. I mean, we know that they have the too high safety problem. And we know that Miko has been not necessarily that reliable second speedster, but they were using Tyreek a little bit more underneath last year and effectively. And so if you add Fuller to be a guy who can – consistently do the things that they haven't felt Miko can consistently do enough to play him enough um, stretch the field and allow Tyreek to operate at all depths. Like we were just talking about with shark feels sweet. I mean, it keeps him in the, in the too deep situation. Mahomes to, to Fuller would be 
scary enough, right? You'd have to still respect that or else Fuller could just smash if you're not respecting it. That's probably the best fit. I mean, he's the best player of that group at this point, probably. Um, I think somebody like Juju or Landry would be more interesting. I've given a little bit of optimism about Allen Robinson. Part of that is because I'm basically just saying that you can look at his 2021 and decide that he didn't want to play in the franchise tag. He hated Matt Nagy and he didn't try because his targets per out run were so much worse than anything he's ever done, even since he was a rookie. It was like he wasn't running his routes to try to get open. But then what I want from him, because I am also still concerned that he's lost a step athletically, is that he lands on a team. Like if he were to land on the Lions, I mean, maybe he just out-targets Amon Ross St. Brown. I could make that case or I can think about that uh, in my head at least. You might disagree in, in, in the relative values of DJ Chark and, and Allen Robinson, but I, I want him to land somewhere where I feel like he has the potential to, to get his targets per out run back up to where it was in his best years in Chicago and be the number one receiver on a team. He's not going to be that in Kansas City. And then I don't want to buy into him being efficient because I am concerned that, that he's just not good anymore. That's part of the of potential outcomes with Allen Robinson. So I don't like him as a fit at all. Landry, Juju. I mean, Juju, because like you were saying with Chark, like I have him on, on more dynasty teams than I care to admit. And I would like to see him get into a situation where he can be a little bit more efficient working off somebody else. I mean, it's be, it's come to that. I know when when Antonio Brown left, I was saying I felt like he could be fine even without Antonio Brown, but that was the concern that he couldn't. I mean, Deontay Johnson turned into a similar type of target hog, and Juju still couldn't operate off of Deontay. It's hard to explain what's happened with Juju the last few years, but I think putting him in an offense like Kansas City that's going to be more or less efficient when they try to take away when defenses try to take away Tyreek and Kelsey, it's gonna it would be a good spot for him to potentially get a little bit more efficient. Hopefully, run some more downfield routes. That's what we want to see out of him. He's been you know an underneath guy for the for the Steelers the last couple of years when he's been healthy. Landry has still been a really good target earner as well, so he'd be the kind of guy that could come in. I think again, efficient offense, earn enough volume even alongside those good players. I'd feel confident in that. It's sort of similar to what I was saying about Allen Robinson, but I don't know. With Landry, it's it's more – I don't think you're making the bet on some kind of crazy ceiling. It's like more of a floor play in my mind with Landry where like I feel like he'd get plenty of targets. He'd be like a Tyler Boyd pick. We've always kind of tied them together, uh, or I have in my mind, uh, as similar players, target-earning slot guys. I think he could still do that and do that well with the Chiefs. I mean, they're not exciting ads, but I think Juju or Landry would be – and at, at different points in their career and at different levels of potential upside. And, and, you know, for Juju, it's more about rebound potential for Landry. It's more about kind of know what you're getting, even though he's, he's a vet uh, and probably isn't going to be any more than that at this stage. Those two guys I think fit in nicely and, and would do well and would earn enough volume to be a consistent third, third guy and then benefit from the efficiency of the offense and the touchdown potential and, and all of those things. I agree completely. I would really enjoy seeing Juju in Kansas City because he's the one who seems like he has the upside. There's still a chance that his career might take a second U-turn and really blow up. I think maybe the best fit and maybe the fit that looks like it's most likely to take place would be Landry in that he's someone where the first half of 2020 was definitely not anywhere close to 100% coming off of the injury. He plays through that. In the second half of 2020, he really comes on. And then in 2021, the quarterback play with Baker Mayfield having the arm injury was just so poor that it's really difficult to decide how much of Landry's situation is him and no longer being a star, no longer being the kind of guy who really justified the contract that he had, which is obviously why 
the Browns released him and how much is just quarterback play. He's always been criticized for not being the downfield guy, but with the Chiefs, I mean, what they need is someone to take those seven and eight-yard chunks over and over and over, especially as they haven't really succeeded in bringing Clyde Edwards-Alaire along as a receiver to take those sort of short passing plays to the running back. If they don't have that, then Landry could just be such a machine underneath, allow them, I think, to use Tyreek Hill a little bit more vertically again and be able to attack at all those levels. We saw Kansas City really adjust well at midseason to what defenses were doing to them. Very explosive then down the stretch, right up until the second half of the AFC Championship game. I think Landry would alleviate a lot of those injuries and, like you said, be able to draw targets in that passing game, give them the final piece. So, some different ways they could go there. Statistically, people want to think that Landry's done, but I'll just add, like his first of all, his targets per out run have always been really good, and that's helped offset the fact that he's a you know a low A dot guy who doesn't necessarily rack up a ton of yards per target or any of those types of you know yards per reception efficiency metrics. But this past year was actually his highest targets per out run of any year with the Browns, and the year before was his second highest. I mean, it, it's actually ticked back up since his first couple of years in Cleveland. There are a couple of you know, his highest numbers other than uh, 2015 and 17 were, his, I guess, probably his best two years in Miami where he just got absolutely peppered and had like, you know, above 25% targets per run. For those of you who have heard me say the numbers enough to kind of know the scale, above 25% is elite. He had a 27.3% of routes he was targeted on that type of season. Uh, in his second year, he had 26% in 2017. These past two years, he's been over 24% still. So, you know, he had a couple seasons in Cleveland where it got down to 22.6 is his career low. But I mean, even that is still very good. I don't expect, I mean, I probably would expect if he went to Kansas City, a career low. Like, I don't expect he would still be in this 22% range. But even if he's able to just only fall to 20% is sort of what I'm envisioning. And I think that what we see in his profile statistically suggests that he probably would. He's still good enough to get open. And so to your point about the quarterback play, I mean, he had poor efficiency, but he's earning targets. So the part that is a huge part of the wide receiver play that the part that he has a lot of control over, he's been still doing that. Maybe he's lost whatever juice he had, but this guy never was necessarily the juiciest player is as funny as that is. Cause that's sort of his nickname. You know, he's got the agility, but not necessarily the, the straight line burst or anything to run away from people. Uh, but he's obviously still has the agility is kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. He's still earning targets. He's still getting open within the context of an offense. And if he's not the number one, which he was in Cleveland for after Odell left these last, you know, certainly this, this last half of this past year. Um, and prior to that, he had to be more of the number one. If he's not, I mean, he doesn't have, you're back to the situation where like he can just run free, like you said, underneath and just be open all the time and probably rack up quite a few seven, eight catch games. And so, yeah, he'd be really interesting. And, no one's going to pay up for Jarvis Landry. We know that. I mean, he'd be a really interesting sixth, seventh receiver to add to your, you know, early receiver strength that you should be having by that point in your, in your builds. And so uh, definitely would be in on him in Kansas city. Well, this has me excited for a near 100% share of Jarvis Landry in 2022. Obviously he'll probably sign also with the Detroit Lions or something like that. <laughs> Ben, this has been a fantastic and fun conversation talking free agents with you. Listeners know this is a great time to sign up for Stealing Signals. There's no bad time. Get out there and get your subscription to the best newsletter in the industry. 
We are having some free agent content on Rotoviz. If you want to get that with a 10% discount, you can use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. Ben and I would love it if you subscribe to our feed. You'll get the shows when they release. If you do, leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. That helps us with the algorithm. Get in there and refresh it. If you haven't for a while, just that little thing like that does help us. We've enjoyed so much having this hour with you. We'll be back later. Talk to you guys then.